Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are the Minimalists. Ryan, we've heard it a thousand times. There's no money in art. It's too risky. You'll starve to death. So we end up chasing more stable careers. We become lawyers and engineers and operations managers instead of writers and filmmakers and painters. We settle. Remember, Ryan, we certainly settled in our 20s. Oh, yeah. What did we settle for? We settled for a nice corporate career, a nice uh, ladder to climb up. Mm. But unfortunately, um, yeah, we climbed high enough. We were like, wait a minute, this is the wrong ladder. And what you're talking about makes me think about how when you decided to get off that ladder and uh, people went to Josh and they're like, what are you going to do, man? Like, are you going to like a competitor? Can can I go with you? Because, you know, it wasn't just him and I that hated our, you know, jobs and our company. But he said, no, I'm going to go be a writer. And they were like, a writer? You can't just go and be a writer. <laughs> and you proved them all wrong, Milburn. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about today. You, maybe we don't have to choose between a creative life and a prosperous life. Today on the Public Podcast, we're talking about earning a living from your creative pursuits. And we're going to do that with our guest today. His name is Jeff Goins. He's a writer of this book, which came out a few years ago. It's called Real Artists Don't Starve. I'll hold this up if you're watching it on YouTube. Jeff, thanks for coming here today. Yeah. Woo! Woo! Yeah. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Good to be here. Thanks. It's been a long time that we've known each other digitally. Yes. And I'm happy to meet you in person. Yeah, likewise. This Thursday on the Minimalist Private Podcast, we're also going to talk to Jeff about how to be more creative. We're going to talk about creativity for uncreative people. You can check that out at uh, patreon.com slash the minimalist, or just click the link in the description. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement free because advertisements suck. Mm. Jeff, this is a listener-driven show, so I thought I'd dive right in. We're going to be referencing your book quite a bit today with some of these questions. Let's start with a question from Facebook. Buster has a question for us. My daughter has been a professional musician for 10 years and holds a master's degree in her instrument, but she just scrapes by, even with a second job. Why do talented people still struggle? Now, Jeff, what I was hoping to do is I have your book here, and I just want to throw some passages at you and maybe have you expand on them. It's been a while since you wrote the book, Uh so I think you might even have new answers Uh as well. So with Buster's question, I uh, have this little pithy saying from your book. You say, all artists have a secret weapon, stubbornness. Mm. So her daughter has been stubborn enough to keep going. She didn't give up, even though it may not be paying the bills fully. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, So the premise of the book is being a starving artist today is a choice, not a necessary condition of doing creative work. And what that means is not that if you're starving, that it's your fault or you did anything wrong, you just might be missing something. And so the book is these 12 different strategies that artists have been using for 500 years, going back to Michelangelo, who was the richest artist of the Renaissance. And after him, he did something 
which I thought was interesting. He did something that no artist had done before him. And after him, during the Renaissance, there were many wealthy and affluent artists. So he changed the game. Mm. And so when I began to understand what Michelangelo got into, I was like, well, like, what's up with that? And is this a pattern? And can you see it in the lives of other successful creative people? And I think you can. And the book is full of, I don't know, 50, 100 stories. And one of the tools is stubbornness. And the story that I tell in that chapter is of F. Scott Fitzgerald, who obviously is the author of The Great Gatsby, one of the best-selling books of all time. And, and he's kind of known as this like tortured, alcoholic, starving artist kind of guy. Now, it was not starving. I mean, if you know anything about the Fitzgeralds, they lived well. I right. don't know, healthily, but well, you know, <laughs> jumping into fountains, you know, renting out the penthouse of the Ritz-Carlton, whatever. Hedonistic. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, which is my definition for well. <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever. Um, he made the equivalent of $500,000 per year as a working writer. He was a wealthy writer. And it wasn't just from his books. I mean, most of his money came from writing articles for Saturday Evening Post, you know, those kinds of publications. So uh, before he became the author we know him as today, uh, he made a decision, similar to you, Josh, where he was in the military, just like you were, you know, fighting for freedom. <laughs> it, I mean, it felt like the military sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> it was militant. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And he fell in love with this uh, Southern belle named Zelda. And um, and she was rich. And, and he was like, I've got to make a lot of money. And he kept asking her to marry him and she kept turning him down. <laughs> and he uh, left the military and started writing and he moved to New York City and he started submitting lots of uh, queries to magazines, newspapers for articles. He was, he was trying to be a writer and he was failing. And he submitted over a hundred articles that all got failed, that, that, that all got rejected, that all failed. And he lined his tiny little apartment with those rejection letters, like mm. wallpaper. Yeah. And he was committed because he met a beautiful woman. <laughs> and, you know, muses still work to this day. And um, he would not give up. And <laughs> the story goes that he, uh, the day that his first book was published, uh, they got married. And, uh, you know, it was, it was tumultuous after that. But what's interesting about Fitzgerald is he actually kind of forgot his stubbornness. And there's, there's an interesting thing about stubbornness because most artists are stubborn about the wrong things. Mm -hmm. You can't make it. You guys know this. You can't make it if you're picky about everything. Mm, yeah. and, and, and if you're picky about, and you can't make it if you're not picky about anything, uh, Jeff Bezos actually has this um, great quote about when he started Amazon. He said, we are stubborn on vision, flexible on details. Most artists I find are the opposite. Because you're an artist, because you can see the nuance in everything, mm. you go, uh, no, that's the wrong lighting. I mean, we were doing it as we were setting this scene up, right? You're like, everything's got to be just right. And those details matter. But we could have spent two hours adjusting everything, right? right? And so most artists I find, especially who are amateurs, are stubborn on the details. And if you're stubborn on the details, you have no vision. You can't see, you know, 20 years in front of you. So what happened with Fitzgerald was he was determined, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to find a way. I'm going to make it happen. And then when he was writing Gatsby, his arguably his greatest work, 
um, he got lost in the details. And that book is incredible. That book was a, a kind of a failure. Um, and it sold about 20,000 copies uh, in its lifetime, which is fine for a book, you know. Um, but it wasn't the success that he was used to. And and that kind of started his downward spiral. I mean, he he died of a heart attack when he was 40 years old. He, mm. And a few years after his death, uh, during World War II, they invented this thing called a paperback. And they started shipping books to soldiers out uh, you know, in, in, in the field and the, you know, out, you know, killing people, killing Nazis. I don't know what they're doing. And, but, but, you know, like it was a morale booster. They were sending out, um, uh, books and, and Fitzgerald have had enough friends in publishing that they said that this is a short book. We can print it as a paperback. And, and they sent it out to soldiers in the field. And, you know, a few years after that, it became this big bestseller. They started putting it into high schools. And so it's interesting. I know that's kind of a long-winded answer to a question, but what's interesting about Fitzgerald is what started his career was stubbornness. He had a stubborn vision. I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to marry Zelda. I'm going to have to make a lot of money because this chick has expensive tastes. You know, Mm. she's used to mansions and stuff. And, And he did it. But then what happened in his work, and this happens a lot with uh, musicians, visual graphic artists, writers, is you get lost in the nuance of your work. Mm-hmm. There, there's things in that book that I don't like. Yeah, mm-hmm. You know, there are things that I regret writing or decisions that I made when I was making it. But we wouldn't be here today if I didn't go, okay, you know, like I'm going to yeah. ship it. I'm going to put it out into the world. He got lost in the details and he got stubborn about the details. He lost his vision and he died. Here, this is a really sad part of Fitzgerald's story. Uh, at the end of his life, he knew Gatsby was his greatest work. So much that he questioned every single decision about it. He hated the title. He wanted to call it like the high bounding lover or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's terrible. It's like yeah. letting Nicodemus no, no, pick a title. Yeah. Dot com. <laughs> it's real bad. But he was, you, you know what that's like. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know what it's like to get lost in a thing that you're creating. I did this yesterday. That mm-hmm. everything feels like do or die. Mm-hmm. And that thinking, that mindset will kill you right? The best thing that an artist can do is make a lot of stuff and never say, this is my, this is my greatest work. That'll kill you. It actually killed Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. And he got estranged from his wife who went crazy. He, he, he became a, a very bad alcoholic. And at the end of his life, he would go into bookstores, used bookstores, and he would buy copies of his own book. Whoa. Just so that they would keep selling it. Because you guys know, you're, you're authors. You, mm. you go into a bookstore and the more copies you buy from a bookstore, the more they order. That was right. the same then. And what's so interesting about him is he died before he ever became one of the world's best-selling authors. That book, Drake Gatsby, sells 500,000 copies on a bad year, every single year. It was published in the 20s. Um, and what's interesting about him is if he had just been stubborn enough to keep going, 
he would have seen incredible success of his work. And it's not true that what made that book successful was that he was an alcoholic, starving, suffering artist. That worked against him. Mm -hmm. And so ironically, the thing he made was more stubborn than he was. And so if you want to be an artist, be stubborn, but be stubborn about the right things. Make a lot of things. Don't get attached to too many things. What I love about blogging, which is why we're all here, mm -hmm. right? Yeah is it, it, we were talking about improv comedy before. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's that, you don't know. Mm -hmm. Remember like writing a blog post and it was okay. Mm -hmm. And like everybody loved it. And you're like, guys. And yeah. remember like mm -hmm. spending weeks on one and you're like, this is it. And nobody cared. Books yeah. are that way too. Yeah. So you've got to be stubborn enough to succeed, which means you've got to keep giving yourself a lot of at-bats and create for yourself a life that allows you the opportunity to write a lot of songs, play a lot of shows, write a lot of books, do a lot of things so that you can see what sticks. Mm. I think that answers the first part of this question really well. The, the second part of Biester's question is, why do talented people still struggle? And you've got this passage from page 145 where you talk about you don't just need pr practice, you also need a patron. Mm. And I think one of the reasons that we often fails. We have this expectation. I'm going to cr just create, but no one is supporting my work. And it actually takes a while to get people to support your work. Or you may think that you need you know, a million fans or even Kevin Kelly's thousand true fans. Right. But in the book, you talk about maybe you just need a fan or yeah. follower, <laughs> supporter, a patron. Yeah. By the way, shout out to our Patreon supporters. Drop your comments in the, uh, the chat, the live chat here. If you're watching this live, we'll get to your questions here in a bit. So for Buster, um, why do, why do talented artists still struggle? <sighs> because, because I think that they're actually stubborn about the details, that mm. they don't have a vision. And, um, and if they do, there's not some practical next step. Um, you're right in that a lot of artists, go, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to move to LA. Mm -hmm. I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to move to Nashville, whatever. And I'm going to go for it. Mm -hmm. And like, that's such a bad way to approach something that happens differently for lots of people. If you've burned all the boats and burned all your bridges, that's a binary decision. You will make it or you will not. Mm. And you don't need to do that today, right? right? Like you can start writing books on the side, publishing them yourself uh, pretty easily. Like we've all done this. I remember you started, you know, self-publishing these books because you want to tell these stories, right? Yeah. And it's really easy. Like yeah. it was even easy then, you mm. know, 10 years ago. And there are these incredible opportunities to put your work out in front of people. And so many artists believe this very old story. I live in Nashville. I remember about eight years ago at a little coffee shop in Franklin, Tennessee, right outside of Nashville. And uh, Franklin is where all the rich people who want to start families move. Uh, so I lived on the outskirts of that town. <laughs> but I was, I was working at a, um, at a, at a coffee shop and I was talking to my agent uh, about a book that I was working on, maybe this book, I don't know. And this guy came up to me, this is eight years ago, and, and he gives me his CD. He goes, hey, um, I heard you talking about agents and publishing, and are you in, are you in the industry? I go, well, I'm in an industry. <laughs> but in, in Nashville, if you go, hey, I'm a writer, they go, what songs have you written? Right. Uh, so I have to yeah. say author, I'm an author. And I said, I, you know, I write books. He goes, do you know anybody in the music industry? And I did, because it's a small town. 
And he goes, could you uh, give this to somebody? And I said, sure. <laughs> I'll give now, it to somebody. <laughs> now, this is this is Nashville Bible Belt. This was dubstep Christian worship music mm. is what that was. I'm not kidding. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and so he gives, this is eight years ago, not a terribly long time ago. He gives me, me a CD. <laughs> A CD. Yeah. And I go, yeah, 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 sure, man. I'll, I'll, whatever, you know? And I sit down and even at this time, my laptop does not have a CD drive. And I go, I don't know what to do with this. (laughs) So that is an example of how artists are not using the resources and technology and tools they have available to them now. They're believing some old story. They're, they watched Walk the Line and they're going to go to Memphis and yeah. go to Sam Phillips' studio and, and make it. And that's not how it happens. The first patron you need to have is yourself. Mm. You need to be the one who's going to finance and fund your dream right? Mm -hmm. So probably don't quit your job right away. Find a way to do it for an hour a day. We all know this. We all did this, right? Like the big Jerry Maguire moment, you know, like that's cool. And if you watch that movie, which is fiction, by the way, his life still kind of sucks for a while because <laughs> that's not the best way to pursue a dream. You don't have to take a leap. You can start building a bridge. Mm. And I believe strongly in that. And so why do artists struggle? I think because they're believing an old story that doesn't quite work today. And they they haven't patronized themselves. They haven't use their own resources to to believe in themselves. You can fund your own art and should for a while. And then I think the next thing is you're not going to find an audience, right? You're going to find one person. I remember when I started my blog and I was like, I just, I'm going to give myself two years to get 250 readers. Mm. And remember like when you got your first comment or email? Oh, yeah. You were like, holy cow, people are listening. <laughs> I wrote this in my underwear at the <laughs> breakfast table. You know, like this is crazy. And I know what it's like to be so uh, egocentric that I'm like, I don't care about that one person. I want a thousand people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, artists don't like talking about that, but every artist I know have a few drinks at a bar. Like that's what they want. They don't want that guy or that girl in the front row. They want everybody. They want the stadium. The stadium is 10,000 of those individuals. Right. And I remember, I I think it was Chris Gillibo who said, um, you know, you want an audience? You should answer every email, reply to every comment until you can no longer do so. Mm. And I remember I would send a weekly email newsletter and I'd have 20, 50, 100. It took me six months to get 1,000 people on my email list. And then first year or so, I got about 10,000 people. I had a one-to-one relationship with 10,000 people. If you replied to an email that I sent, I responded. Yeah. You know, and I don't, think people realize that, you know, like they don't realize that the work of building an audience is not just playing the show. It's hanging out afterwards and and talking to the people who liked it. Your job as a creative professional is to find one person who likes it and go, you liked it? Great. And find more of those people. Yeah. Man, uh, you talking about the, um, you know, holding strong on the vision, but uh, you know, being able to kind of have some flexibility with the details. It makes me think about how Josh and I talk about how you have to have these high standards, yep. but have these low expectations. Love that. So I would ask, you know, Buster's uh, daughter, like, hey, what is, what are your standards? What are you holding uh, strong? What are you committed to? 
And the way you get there is not as important as, yeah, having that, having that vision. I, I would ask like a couple things that come to mind. I'm like, is she going to open mic nights? Has she recorded, you know, an album to put out into the world? Um, how often is she creating? Because I think a lot of times artists, it's so hard to get this talent. And mm-hmm. the talent is so important. Like you got to have a little bit of talent to, to produce art. But that is, once you have the talent, I feel like that's only about 50% of your journey. The other 50% is having that vision and making it come to fruition. Uh, would you agree with that? Or, Yeah, I mean, I, I would replace the word talent with skill. Yeah. Because talent is this thing that we think we're born with and maybe... Like, mm-hmm. uh, most of what we understand about talent has been debunked. There's still, still, still like, especially when it comes to like sports, physical sort of performance, there are some outliers, but so much of the science of skill acquisition, going back to Malcolm Gladwell's outliers yeah. has essentially been debunked. Uh, even perfect pitch, right? Which was this musical ability that people thought you were born with. Turns out you can teach kids how to do that if you get them early enough. You can you can oh. teach a kid to develop perfect pitch. Mm. It's possible. Wow. So the human being is a, incredibly plastic. Neuroplasticity is the word, right? Like you can, they're moldable, right? So yeah, step one, get good, mm-hmm. right? Of course. Mm-hmm. But like get the right kind of good. Mm. It's not like, what does it mean to be a good musician? You can sing and, and write music. Well, all art is a conversation with culture. It's not just about making cool stuff. All art is about how do how am I reacting to what's going on in the world right now? Mm-hmm. So don't be stubborn about the kind of art. I mean, this might, maybe not everybody agrees with this. Don't be stubborn about the kind of art that you think you're going to create. Yeah. 12 years ago, did you think you would be doing this? I didn't know what a podcast was, so no. Yeah. But also, like, we didn't think about, I didn't, there was no Netflix really at the time. Right. We, we didn't think about making documentaries. I didn't think about having a YouTube channel. Didn't think about the podcast or really social media to any great extent. It was, hey, we started this blog and maybe we'll write some books. Yeah. And the first book we wrote was a PDF. Yeah. We couldn't even print books at the time. Right. Yeah. Right. But we were and, just getting work out there. And so realizing that the vision itself also can't be so rigid because then it prevents you from flowing toward wherever you're going to go. Because if my vision was strictly, I'm only going to write books. This is my vision of my 20s. I'm going to write fiction. Of course. I want to write novels and that's all I want to write. And then, of course, Ryan comes with this idea for The Minimalists and it's like a blog. I don't even know what that is, right? But we just started following that path, having a vision but not being so rigid about it that we weren't willing to pivot as well. Yeah, it's interesting because the vision that I've always had with this is um, adding value to other people's lives. Yes, and it, you've become vehicle agnostic exactly. along the way. Yeah, That's great. Uh, here's vision. Here's a good vision. I live in Kansas. A friend of mine who used to be a technical writer for a, a big company, Johnson & Johnson, which will remain nameless. This this episode is actually sponsored by, um, I don't know, some some cream. Johnson & Johnson. Some cream, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Crotch cream. Uh, (laughs) Man, that's good. Patent pending. Sorry, man. Yep. Speaking of stubbornness, you ever have like a stubborn rash (laughs) and the sun doesn't shine? Anyway, uh, speaking of... So a friend of mine... (laughs) I wanted to be a writer and he worked for 10 years as a technical writer. Mm. If you want to be a creative writer, you don't want to work for a Fortune 500 company as a technical yeah. writer. Like, you know, it's it's not fun. It's ones and zeros, basically. And people, he quit, you know. He, he had a year's worth of salary saved 
And people asked them all kinds of questions. They said, um, what are you going to do about life insurance and, and health insurance and, and, and what's your family going to do and how are your kids going to go to school? And, mm. and he basically said, yo, I don't know. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. I've done the best that I can. This has been my dream for 10 years. And it's sort of like this. I've lived in Kansas my whole life. He didn't live in Kansas, he's from Pennsylvania. But, you know, if you, if you want to like, like just think of the most, you know, normal mundane place, you pick Kansas, right? Um, no offense to any Kansas people no, out there. No, 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 no. <laughs> Kansas is a beautiful state, by the way. No offense to the Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, to those, yeah. Um, so he said, it's like I've been living in Kansas my whole life and I've always wanted to live on the beach. And one day, after dreaming of where I'm going to go on the beach, what kind of my tie I'm going to have, what my chair on the beach is going to look like. This is where dreams die, by the way, for creative people, is you think about all this crap that you think you're going to do. You put it on your vision board and and you think you're going to manifest it. And that's not how dreams get manifested. This is how dreams get manifested, the way my friend did it. He quit his job after adequately preparing, writing books on the side, doing this, he said, I've wanted to live on the beach my whole life and I couldn't figure out all the details. So I packed up the van, put all my kids in there and we were driving towards water. You want a vision, you find out what your water is. You find out where you want to go and the ocean is really big. Yeah. Drive towards water. You know in your life when you are not driving towards water. You mm. can feel it. And you also know when you're stuck at a gas station trying to figure out the next road to take. It's it's not like that. Just find your water and drive towards it. That's so good. Let's move on to our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Looks like Andrea from Tucson has a question for us. I have a lot of artwork from childhood and high school that was saved by my parents and then given to me because they went out of their house. And some of it's decent quality. A lot of it is sentimental but I want it out of my house. I don't want to display it. It doesn't really serve anything for me at this point in my life. And I mean, I don't want it to go into the trash, but if it does, I don't want to know that it's being thrown away. So do you guys have any ideas of how I can um, get rid of it, places to give it to, um, just anything? I just need it out of my life at this point. All right, Jeff. So this is, Obviously, we had to bring it back into minimalism in sure, some way, right? Yeah, right? And so what we're talking about here is she's created some stuff in the past that she may not be proud of, doesn't really want, but also like she wants it gone from her life but doesn't want to get rid, rid of it. Right. That often happens to many of us. Mm-hmm. This reminds me uh, to some extent where someone's like, I want to eat meat, but I don't want to kill animals. Right. And, <laughs> and, right. and yet, so like, I'll just pretend that nothing is going. So if someone else can hide this art for me, yeah, I think this is... We all sort of have the residue of our past, right? And it can haunt us. You even mentioned like, oh, there are some things in this book that I I don't like. But you also recognize that this adds value to people's lives. And so in order for it to add value to people's lives, there's going to be things that you've created in the past that maybe you don't personally get value from anymore, but someone else might. This is more of a decluttering question, though. Hey, I have a bunch of stuff from the past that I want to let go of, and I'm terrified of letting go of it. Should I hold on to it for posterity? Yeah. Uh, There's two things that come to mind. One is there's a little-known story about Hemingway when he moved to Paris. 
Uh, he moved to Paris because he was told that that's where the most interesting people in the world lived and he wanted to be a writer. And he uh, had had just um, recovered from a, a wound as an ambulance driver. Uh, he, uh, during World War One, kind of drove over this landmine and, and, and got some uh, shrapnel on his leg. And... Um, and he got married, moved to Paris. Uh, it was cheap there at the time. Uh, it is not cheap there anymore. <laughs> um, no, and he, and he moves to Paris and he's writing all the time. And he's writing these stories. And um, and his wife, and he went on a trip and she, she came back from the trip to meet him. And he went back to Paris because he was working for a newspaper at the time. And he had this trunk full of manuscripts, uh, like, a, like a couple of books that he was working on and stories and all kinds of things. And she lost the trunk. Mm. And or the trunk got lost, mm. and he blamed her. Uh, which <laughs> she is, sold it on eBay. <laughs> and, and what's interesting about that is, I mean, this is kind of interesting because somewhere or at some point there are these uh, undiscovered Hemingway manuscripts that nobody has ever found. That you know, or I don't know, they're buried somewhere. They got yeah. thrown away or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened right after that is he stepped into the most prolific season of his life. He wrote The Sun Also Rises shortly after that. He wrote The Sun Also Rises in six weeks. Mm. And, and, and that was the book that put him on the map uh, and made him an, basically an overnight sensation. And he eventually became uh, one of the 20th century's most famous and successful authors. And you could say that it started out with unintentional decluttering. <laughs> And so I've got sort of two thoughts on that. One is if you really just want to close your eyes and and let go, I think it's okay to like have somebody take care of that for you and go, hey, I don't want to know about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And you guys are the expert at this more than I am. Um, But I did just move. Mm. And I had 20 years of stuff um, because I'm a very sentimental person. I had letters. I had things that I had written, things that people had written me. Um, going back 20 years. And um, and I found it to be very cathartic to actually go through these letters uh, one by one. I mean, hundreds. It took me hours. And I didn't like, I, I like looked at, you know, looked at them. I didn't read all of them. But some of them I, I got, I, I re-encountered the memory of the experience of where I was at that time, who this person was to me, friend, girlfriend, parent, you know, lots of different relationships. And um and maybe three or four people, it, it sort of, um, I was like, I still want to be in touch with that person. So I took a picture of the letter and I texted it to this person as just sort of a way to like connect with them. And then I threw the letter away because mm-hmm. I was like, this is what I want. Yeah. I want the connection with the human, not the letter. And then I actually saved just a handful of them because, you know, they're nice mementos. And, um, and that was, that was a spiritual experience. I mean, you guys know this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't, I, I wasn't ready for that and, until that point where it was significant to me. I was starting this new chapter of my life. And I kind of said goodbye to these things while remembering the memories and, and holding on to it. I know artwork can be a little bit different, but kind of. I mean, these were like songs I'd written in some cases. Mm-hmm. These were paintings and drawings that I had or that people had given me. And I would say, you know, if there's some stuff that you want, you want people to see, cool. Like maybe go, hey, friend, take care of this for me. 
And I do think it can be very cathartic to go through some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And Seth Godin told me once when he decluttered his library, he said that his books are his friends and he still misses them every day. And I, as an author, I love that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I recently moved and I got rid of a lot of stuff and like 10 books, you know? And the yeah. other 9,000 remained. <laughs> But your works of art are your friends. They're your family. They're very significant to you. It's hard to throw them away. And you can say goodbye to them in a really beautiful way um, that isn't maybe as traumatic as, you know, your wife showing up at a train station without, you know, these these staggering works of genius you've been working on. Mm. And it's like, it's okay to just go, okay, see you later. I'm going to let go of that energy so I can go right. The sun also rises. So I can go, I can be free of the energy because a lot of work that we do early, early on is not good. You know, I don't hear you saying this is really, really good stuff that needs to be in a museum. You have to have a lot of reps. You've got to do a lot of stuff and you can give that stuff away or throw it away or sell it. It doesn't actually matter. As an artist, you're trying to get to your best work as quickly as possible. And the best way to do that is to do a lot of work and not cling to each single piece of it. Last night, we were at the comedy store and we saw this great comedian trying a new joke. He goes, I'm going to try a new joke. He, he, he read the joke. Nobody laughed. He goes, okay, bad joke. And this one woman goes, I don't get it. He goes, well, here, let me explain it to you. He goes, if nobody laughs though, I don't need to explain it. It's Mm -hmm. dead. Mm -hmm. You know, and you've got to be that unprecious with your work. Yeah. That's him letting go. And so from a very practical standpoint, if you need to save something for posterity, I'm grateful. Like I know a lot of David Foster Wallace's works are collected at the university of Texas at this sort of, but it's all cataloged digitally. And I don't need the actual physical artifact. If you ha- In fact, it's better in many respects to have the digital version. That way it's backed up. If you have a no, house fire, longer, flood, yeah. yeah, anything like that. Yeah. And so if you really feel like there's something I'd like to hold on to for the sake of archiving it for future generations, fine. But the truth is we don't need to archive most of our second grade artwork. Well, my mom or my, my wife's mom did this amazing thing for all of her kids. You know, they collected a lot of sort of kids stuff all throughout the the, the years as parents often do. But what she did in the last year is she pared everything down to one box per kid. Mm. Here are the most sort of sentimental memories. And it created a boundary or a barrier. I can't go beyond this box. But then she handed each kid a very intentional box. And here you go. And so if you want an intentional way to do this before it gets swept up in a flood or just someone else comes and steals it from your house, doing that on your own, curating it in a way where it fits into a capsule of sorts and then digitizing the other things. But you're letting go so you can move forward. You can work on the future art because if I continue to cling to the books and the blog posts and everything else that I wrote in the past, it's going to prevent me from doing anything meaningful going forward. Yeah. yeah, art is an expression of a moment. And it's wonderful to have a collection of some moments. But kids are incredibly prolific, you know? What was interesting to me, and I actually thought about you guys, because this just happened last week, I was like, all right, kids, you know, like stuff you want to donate, put in into this box, stuff that just needs to be trashed because, you know, like the pieces aren't, you know, all together or whatever, put it in here. And then stuff you want to keep, put it in here. Uh, my kids didn't have much stuff. We've been living in an apartment for the past three years and they got rid of about 80% of their stuff. Oh, wow. And I was like, 
hey, I gave this to you for Christmas. <laughs> like, and they're like, yeah, I don't use it anymore. <laughs> That's awesome. And I was like, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. <laughs> like, this costs some money. <laughs> it was hard. It was hard for me. Yeah. But you know what's so interesting about that is Kids are always in the moment. They go, well, that's from six months ago. This is what's true now. Mm. And I had a lot of artwork that my children had made and I didn't keep all of it because some of it kind of sucks. Sorry, kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I would I would keep the stuff that I really liked. I'd go, that was a cool picture that I want to hold on to because this is an articulation. It's a snapshot mm. of who my daughter was at five, six years old. But think of it like this, right? Life is always happening. And you could take a picture of life happening, right? And uh, one of my favorite spiritual teachers is a guy named Anthony DeMello. Yeah, he's my favorite. And he talks about, he goes, people go on trips to take pictures of places they never saw. Because you never you never got to slow down and experience it. Yesterday we were at- I think it's a Drake line, actually. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds right. That sounds right. And it's like that, you know, so mm. much of life, even art, is holding on to moments that have already passed. Now, it's okay to take a picture of a beautiful moment, right? Like, I'm glad that I have some moments captured, but you could go through life taking pictures of every moment and not experiencing any of it. Same is true of your art. Mm. Uh, I think it was uh, Bob Dylan who said about Blowing in the Wind, he goes, I don't even know who wrote that. I'm not that guy anymore. Yes. My friend Derek Webb, who's a musician, says when he plays his old songs, he plays them as covers because he's not that person anymore, mm. you know? Yeah. And it's like a book. It's like, oh, I wrote that? Right. Gosh. That had to do with what I was reading, how I was sleeping, what I was eating, what I was thinking. I could mm. never write that book again. That's mm. right. You know? And so your art is always an expression of life keep living and you will keep making more art. And if you want to hold on to some stuff and share some stuff, cool. And a lot of times the stuff that you think is awesome, people are like, ah, and some of the stuff that you think is is okay, people love. Mm. But keep living, keep creating, and keep letting go of the little articulations of moments that you've manufactured because there will be more moments and there will be more art. And most artists who are holding on to relics of their past are afraid that they're done and that their best work is behind them. And that is only ever true when you believe it's true. Mm. Yeah, we cling out of, that, out of fear. We, uh, yeah. We're running over on time. So I'm going to, we'll save the Patreon live stream questions for the Maximal episode this week. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions. We answer your text messages. You can text those questions to 937 202 Four six five four. Yes, indeed. Now, Jeff, during the lightning round, this is where we and our guests, we try to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. But don't worry, I have one of your pithy quotes. Okay. We call them minimal maxims. And uh-huh. Podcast John puts them in the show notes so people can copy and share our pithy answers on social media. We have a question from Millie. I am an aspiring artist and know an online presence is necessary, but it's a huge distraction for me. How do I manage social media when I need it to make money? So, Jeff, you have this quote on page 10 of your book. This is something pithy. Before you can create great art, you first have to create yourself. Mm. And you were talking about that a little bit earlier. But one of the things I think quite often that we, we try to do is we try to supplement the creating process with all of these empty calories in a way. We, mm. Now, you can use social media in a creative and artistic way. There's no mm. doubt about that. But quite often, we use it as an avoidance yeah. 
to keep us from actually writing, painting, creating, filming, taking photos, whatever it might be. You want to expand on that a bit? Yeah, I would say, practically speaking, go deep in one place where you can do your best work and then be very intentional about setting up guardrails to protect the integrity of that work. That would be about 140 characters. That's good. That's solid. And what, what That's I mean solid. by that is like, your best work might happen on Twitter or it might happen on, you know, a long form podcast. Yeah. And it's okay to dabble, but find one place where you can get deep into the work and stay there. And that's hard because the whole point of social media is like this thing and this thing and this thing. But go show up someplace where you can do really good work and mm-hmm. stay true to that for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, uh, here's my pithy answer for you. Needing a thing reduces one's ability to enjoy that thing. And I'll say that, especially with social media, if you feel as an artist or creative or a podcast or whatever you are, that you need social media, you're going to cease to enjoy it. In fact, it's going to feel like a chore. Uh, I, ha- I mean, you hear this all the time. I have to post about this. Yeah, you don't need social media as an artist. You need no. a place to practice, right? And so if you're a comedian, you should go to the comedy store and just show up every night and get, you know, get on the list because you need a place to practice and the best artists practice in public. Ryan, you got something pithy for us? Yeah, my pithy answer is the artist's priority is art. I mean, that's, that's, that's if, if you're making social media a priority, well, then now you're, you're straying away from what your actual priority is. Um, you know, people ask a lot, they're like, you know, hey, Ryan, uh, how, do, how do you have a successful podcast? Um, you know, how did you guys start a successful blog? And Josh and I have written about both of those things. But really, the secret is consistency. Like, that's one of the big secrets, yeah. consistency. We have a blog post uh, two to three times a week. We do a podcast once a week, a minimal episode, uh, and then one a maximal episode a week. Consistently, day in and day out, people know exactly what to expect. And what I see a lot of people doing is they start off really strong because they're excited about it, and then it starts to become a little bit, uh, a little bit mundane, or, or it's work. You know, it's it's putting in the effort. There's some sort of drudgery there. There's some drudgery, yeah. And they don't drudge through that drudgery. They stop, and as soon as they do that, they lose any audience that they started to gain, and quite frankly, a lot of those people won't come back right away. Yeah. You have to go back to the consistency. So yeah, I mean, just being consistent with it is one of the biggest keys. Producing or making the art is is kind of the big thing, I feel like. Okay, I got another pithy answer. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Don't promote practice in public. Mm. Use social media to create good work. Yeah. Like that's that's it, right? Like you guys aren't you aren't making stuff and promoting it. The work mm-hmm. itself is the promotion. Yeah. And you've got to find the right place to do that. That's a great distinction. Yeah. Jeff, we got so much more to talk about. I got a couple added value segments this week, Nicodemus. We'll uh, dive into those. You're going to enjoy this. Also, we have a very special announcement. If you live anywhere in Southern California, stay tuned for that. But first, Malabama, what do you got for us? Here are some voicemail comments and insights from our listeners. Hello, it is Kit calling from Toronto, Ontario. I did want to comment on meditation as I'm an individual who is very frustrated at the beginning of their meditation journey since I'm somebody who has a monkey mind. And the traditional idea of meditation, the sitting, closing your eyes and clearing your mind, 
just didn't resonate with me. <laughs> so I dove a little further, did a little bit of research, and I found out that meditation is actually more about being in the present moment. And once I was able to wrap my mind around this concept, it was a lot easier for me to actually have a mindful practice in everyday life, whether I'm doing the dishes or the laundry, any mundane task can be meditation. It's as long as you're being mindful and you're being present and you're being aware. So keep in mind that individuals who are maybe frustrated with the traditional idea of meditation, you can actually meditate when you're dancing, when you're going to the gym, a walk in the park, or even when you're watching TV. It can really be anything that you enjoy as long as you're present and in the moment. Hello, I'm Lari from Brazil, and this is for the lady who asked about minimizing beauty products. First, don't let social media like Pinterest and Instagram compel you to consume. It's easy to mistake inspiration with comparison. To me, minimalist beauty could be about enhancing what you have instead of spending time and money trying to change it. I found freedom in embracing my natural hair texture and color. I found a hairdresser who knew how to properly cut my hair type, then minimize the time and money spent trying to change it. About makeup, you can minimize the amount of stuff by owning multi-purpose tools like a beauty blender that replaced all skin and concealer brushes for me. Get rid of repeated items and throw away expired makeup as it can grow bacteria and cause breakouts. And don't feel bad if you paid a lot for something and need to toss it. If buying an item made you happy, it already served its purpose. All right, y'all, before we get to our added value segment this week, and we have two added values for you that are amazing. We are joined by telephone by our good friend, TK Coleman. TK, what's up, man? What it is. How's it going, fellas? Oh, uh, we're just Always so glad. Good to be among proper villains. <laughs> we're happy to have you here. We're sorry yeah. we couldn't have you in studio. You know, you were supposed to be here today with Jeff Goins. He missed you, but he was a... He, you're the reason he was on the podcast. We've known Jeff for a long time. Mm-hmm. We want to say thanks to him, by the way. Oh, yeah. You, Great you, podcast. You can check out his um, his book that we talked about on the podcast. And we have TK here. And TK, we're starting something special. It's called Sunday Symposium. Folks can find the details at sundaysymposium.com. The first one is August 28th. It is here in Los Angeles. Now, you and Ryan and I, but mainly you and Ryan, had a desire to start mm. a local community. Mm. And I wanted to run this by you on the phone right now. What was the impetus of, of starting this, this idea? And then we'll talk about the details here in a moment. Man, well, you know, I've been working with you guys pretty closely for the past few years now. And I always enjoy coming into the studio and just having great conversation with you. But there was something really special about being on tour with you guys this past year and having the opportunity to interact with the live audience, having the opportunity to engage them, even when someone is asking a question, being able to ask for clarification or ask for specificity. There is there is a certain quality of aliveness that comes from human interaction, and there's just no substitute for it. I've always been a fan of the theater, for instance, and when you go to a movie, it's great. You know, it's all embellished and it's all very well produced. And I love it. We should keep doing that. But then there's a certain kind of magic you get when you go into the theater because there's a risk. The actor might mispronounce a word. You know, the audience might laugh one night, but they might cry a different night over the same scene. That spontaneity 
that spirituality of human interaction is just a beautiful thing that we can't get from the digital interaction. And I've always been fascinated with that. And when I got a chance to experience the magic of being together with you all uh, and interacting with people, I, you know, my immediate thought was, how can we do more of this? Mm. Like, this is so healing for all of us. How can we do this more? Additionally, um, about 40% of Americans claim to be very religious Mm. and only about a fifth of that audience actually attends any kind of weekly church or synagogue. And part of the reason why is just because, you know, maybe they don't find that experience to be relevant. One of the results of that decline in church attendance is people have thrown out the baby with the bathwater and they now are divorced from community. Having a weekly source of inspiration or having just a a periodic source of inspiration doesn't have to be every week, but being able to connect with other people, being able to share in in that common desire to live our best lives and be healthier versions of ourselves. And so another reason why this is so interesting to me is because it's a way for us to help build a community that isn't about us, but about that natural human longing to connect with one another and work together to build the lives that we want to live. That's a mouthful, but I'll stop there, guys. Mm, that's a great place to start. You know, Ryan came to me one day and he said, I'd like to start a minimalist church without religion or dogma or ideology. Well, here's the thing, man. I'm so, I'm fed up with teaching people what to believe in when they need to really believe in themselves. And that's what we're going to do with the Sunday Symposium. And that's what we do when we go on tour. It's not about uh, preaching about any specific religion or, 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 or yeah, or dogma, whatever it may be. It's about people being able to look at themselves and, and, and really gain the emotional leverage they need to do whatever they need to do in their life. That's right. And we're going to start small. So this is a small community. I will tell you this within the first hour of this podcast coming out, it will most likely be sold out. It's a free event. If you can't afford to give a donation, donations are out to help us pay for the venue. It's downtown Los Angeles. You can find all the details at sundaysymposium.com. The very first one is August 28th. If this thing goes well, then we'll continue to do more of these, whether it's monthly, quarterly, weekly. I'm not exactly sure yet. Yeah. We want to start small. 200 people only. If you can donate, great. If you can't afford it, that's okay, too. You can get a free ticket over at sundaysymposium.com. Here's the gist of it. It's a simple gathering for simple people, a local, loving, dogma-free community, kind of like a church without religion. Now, it's not to say that religion is bad, or, but what we're saying here is all beliefs are welcome, whether you're part of a religion or all non-beliefs are welcome as well. It's all ages. The hugs are free. The conversation's free. We're going to give a talk about simple living. We'll do a discussion between the three of us. And we have a secret guest. We might even have a secret musical guest as well. And uh, and then, we'll, of course, answer your questions. We'll do audience discussion, Q&A, a whole bunch of surprises there. Limited to 200 people. It's noon, Sunday, August 28th. It's uh, Sunday Symposium. Tickets are free or pay what you can, so they will sell out quickly. TK, you want to add anything else today? Yeah, man. I mean, since religion has come up so many times, I'll just say, uh, from my point of view, religion or be a substitute for religion or any of that kind of stuff, this is about human beings coming together to create, to collaborate, to connect, 
and to work together to create meaningful experiences and to embrace the spontaneity and uncertainty of that. We're going to create an opportunity for us to just facilitate something new and be open to the possible. And that's really what this is all about. Oh, man, that's that is beautiful. And what I'll say is that TK, Ryan and I all have different religious and spiritual beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so if, I don't want you to be turned off by the idea. This isn't like church. You're not coming to a church. It happens to be the same time. It's noon on a Sunday. But this is for <laughs> folks who want to attend something local that is meaningful and see how it grows from here. TK, thank you so much for joining us today. By the way, it's my uh, my birthday tomorrow. I wrote this essay, TK. You tell me what you think. It's called, This Minimalist Wants a Birthday Gift. Here's uh, Here's how it goes. 41 is a fairly unremarkable birthday. Too old to be young, too young to be truly wise. But since today, June 29th, 2022, well, that's tomorrow, really. It's my 41st birthday. Perhaps you can make it more meaningful. I'm not writing this missive to impart 41 life lessons. Although if you're looking for that, you can read last year's 40 life lessons from 40 years, which is an underappreciated gem. Rather, I'm writing to ask you for a gift. So if you're listening to this podcast, you want to get me a gift for my birthday, I'm actually asking you for a gift. Isn't that ironic, Ryan? This minimalist wants a gift. Mm. Now, I don't need new socks, cufflinks, or a bread maker. Guess I'm returning all my gifts then. (laughs) (laughs) So instead of sending me a physical gift, would you be willing to rate and review the minimalist podcast on Apple Podcasts? We'll put a link to that in the show notes. That would be the best gift for me because your review will help our simple living message reach more ears. Now, unlike most shows, Ryan and I don't continually ask our listeners to rate and like and subscribe and click the notification bell every episode because that feels like audio clutter to us. So hopefully on the rare occasion that we do ask, you'll feel compelled to give us that gift. It takes less than two minutes, and I'd appreciate an Apple podcast review much more than an Applebee's gift card. <laughs> hey, man, you don't have to Applebee's. I used to work at Applebee's. I felt like that was a personal. <laughs> oh, my I'm goodness. just saying, man, I, I, I don't need the seed oils in my life anymore. So mm. if you, if you want to give me something, leave me a review and leave Ryan a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us. We don't ask you every episode, hey, please uh, like and subscribe. Mm-hmm. Avoid the audio clutter. This is the one time of the year I'm going to ask you. It's my birthday. If you want to get me a gift, leave us a review. Applepodcast.com slash The Minimalists. That would really help us out. Now, TK, for our added value segment this week, you know, we've got new Sean here. We're calling The, the folks are calling him Prof Sean or Professor Sean because he teaches my How to Write Better class with me. Uh, HowToWriteBetter.org, by the way. But that's not our added value segment this week. Our good friend, Professor Sean, his real name is Sean Mahalik. He has a new novel out today on June 28th, and it is called Lumina. I encourage you to check it out. He is a super talented writer, a talented novelist. Yes. Sean, what is this? Your uh, fifth book? It might be my seventh. I lose track. Holy (laughs) moly. Who is this guy? Colin Wright? (laughs) Who lives in track of how many books he's written? This guy, a copy of my resume, please. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So so check out his new book. It's called Lumino. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's his longest book. And he has told me that it is his best book. It's the only one of his I haven't read yet, but I'm looking forward to reading the physical copy today as soon as I get it. 
Now, let me leave you today with our second added value. Since it's the beginning of summer right now, and it's really feeling like summer, Mm -hmm. I thought I'd play my favorite summertime song. It's called Summertime by the Fresh Prince. (laughs) By the way, Ryan, we got a bunch more surprise questions this week, like... How do I put an end to my perfectionism so I can write more? Is it possible for me to be creative if I'm not a creative person? How do I make time to be creative while I'm working a regular job? How do full-time creative hand how do full-time creatives handle health insurance, retirement, financial planning, and other things traditionally covered by a nine-to-five job, plus a million more questions for Jeff Goins and The Minimalist. And if you want to hear all that, check out The Minimalist private podcast this week. Visit patreon.com slash The Minimalists or subscribe via the link in the description. Once you subscribe, you'll get a personal link so that our weekly private podcast plays in your favorite podcast app. You'll also gain immediate access to hundreds of hours of archives, recordings of live events, exclusive home tours, and our private community of thousands of open-minded minimizers like you. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists. If you want our podcast show notes in your inbox, sign up for our email list over at theminimalists.com. On behalf of Jeff Goins, Ryan Nicodemus, T.K. Coleman, Malabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Slightly transformed, just a bit of a break from the norm.